Well, it was uh, wonderful that we prayed for our uh, teachers and children who are going back to school. And one of the things that Glenn said was uh, he prayed for those who are going to college. And Serena, who just went through the back door there, she's going to college. Uh, so we prayed for Serena last week in our prayer for all people. You can go. That's fine. I'm just going to talk about you. Um, <laughs> but uh, so she's leaving. Uh, Shauna's taking her to St. Clair College in Windsor today. And so we, today is a day of goodbye. If you haven't had a chance to say goodbye to her yet, you may not get the chance today because they've given me the heads up that they'll be leaving uh, before the end of the sermon so when they leave, I don't want you to think that it's because I've uttered some terrible blasphemy from the pulpit. Uh, but Serena does have a, uh, a meeting with her residents at 4 o'clock. So it's, uh, it's bittersweet. It's, uh, it's sweet because it's nice to see Serena growing up, going to college, doing something that she loved. This is a wonderful opportunity, but it's bitter because we lose a member of our church, at least for a time, or she'll be at least at a distance uh, so we want to remember her and Shauna and the whole family in our prayers this week especially. Uh, transitioning now to today's sermon, if you've lived any time at all, you will know that life is hard. Some lives are harder than other lives. Uh, some people experience greater depths of sorrow and suffering, perhaps more frequently than other people. And that is true in a group like this, this part of the world. But then if you just expand that and look at people all over the world, there are some places in the world where suffering seems to be uh, on greater order, especially if by that suffering we mean persecution for the faith. We want to remember that even today, many men, women, youth, and children will give up their lives because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so suffering is not uh, distributed around the world in equal measure to each person. God in his divine wisdom and his sovereign supremacy has decided for each of us the measure and the frequency and the timing of the suffering that we will endure. However, one thing is sure, if you are alive, you will suffer. S life is a series of moments and many of them are not easy. One thing over the last month that we've been looking at is that God uses suffering, and not only suffering, suffering among other things, but he uses suffering as one of those ways that he will conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To put that in different words, God wants us to be like Jesus, and he's going to make us to be like Jesus one way or another. And so we are conformed to the image of Christ through the preaching of his word, by prayer, uh, by the special grace that he gives in our life, and through the, the lives that he has given us to live. And in that life that he has given to us, us to live, some of the things that we will endure and some of the ways that God will conform us to the image of his son is through suffering. Now this is a message that flies in the face of prosperity preaching. So prosperity preaching or the health and wealth gospel, you might know of Joel Osteen or some others. He's just one of the most prominent prosperity preachers today who would say that if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's because there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with what you are doing. And therefore, believe harder, pray more often, get your life in order so that God's blessings can flow into your life. That's not the true gospel. That's not what the Bible says. 
Joel Osteen and others, they're false preachers. They're not true teachers of the Word of God. Because what the Bible is very clear about is that suffering is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And in fact, that is the mark of your, your sonship or your daughtership is that you are suffering. And, and we've talked about suffering being just living in a fallen world. There, there is no place in Scripture where it says that you can live in a fallen world and not suffer. Then there's also just the reality of the sin in, in each of us and the sin around us. We hurt one another because of our sin. We are both the victims and the, the violators of one another. We, we do things and we receive things done by other people that hurts us, which causes suffering. And as I've said, the point of the spear and really what is in focus in Romans chapter 8 is suffering for Christ's sake. That if you stand up in a world that hates God and you say, I belong to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that he has died for me and he has to die for you as well or else you're not right with God. The world will hate you. And in some measure, you will suffer. You might suffer mockery or ridicule on the, on the shallow end, or you might spill your blood, as Peter says, which is somewhere in the middle, or you might be asked to give up your very life, which is going to happen to many believers around the world this very day. The problem with the prosperity gospel, the, the health and wealth preaching, is that they've, they've got the scope of the blessing wrong and they've got the timing of it wrong. We're going to be blessed much more than what they would have us believe, but the timing of that blessing is not now. Now, is there blessing if you're a Christian right now? Absolutely, but it's not a blessing that comes without suffering. It's not necessarily a blessing of material prosperity and health. It's a blessing of fellowship with the triune God. That as the bride of Christ, we are invited into the eternal fellowship and love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit because we belong to Him. And we, unlike any other creature, not even any holy angel, gets that blessing and it begins now and it will be consummated at the return of Christ. So that's the facts, but this I must admit, is rather difficult news. Yes, suffering is a given in this life because, to put it in vulgar terms, God wants to bang us into the image of His Son. He wants to press us. He wants to purify us. He wants to bend us so that we look more like Jesus, and that's going to hurt. So we might just as well say thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for the offer of clear and present suffering, but I'm going to pass, and I'm going to look for comfort, security, health, and wealth outside of the gospel. I'm going to take what I can have now and forfeit whatever eternal inheritance there is waiting for me. I want pleasure now. I want comfort now. I want security now. And we live in a culture of this immediate gratification, so we're all very uh, vulnerable to this kind of thinking. We might say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to be pressed into the image of Christ now for an eternal inheritance later. 
And we might come to the belief that under this paradigm of a gospel that says you will suffer if you belong to Christ, we might say that God under this paradigm does not seem very loving. He doesn't seem very gentle. He doesn't seem very kind. Where's the blessing? Where's the love? Where's, where's the benefit of belonging to Him? Because all that you're going to hear from this pulpit is that the Christian life comes with suffering. And you might even find that I, with the Word of God, or the Holy Spirit will rebuke you for seeking comfort and material prosperity and avoiding the hard life that God has called you to. That, that we as Christians, it's not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to get out of hell, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to His plan for your life so that through the, the experiences of your life and the hardship of your life, He will make you eternally glorious. And so there are some of us sitting here right now that are avoiding at all costs any kind of life that looks anything like that. And I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you of that and say, you know what, I need to make some decisions that put me squarely under the Lordship of Christ even though it means I have to give up some of the comforts and the blessings that I have. This will be impossible to do. You will not make that transition to put yourself into a dangerous position or to give up material uh, comforts of any kind if you don't have a well-rooted, a firm uh, foundation in the promises of the gospel. What is the gospel promising? Why is it worth it to suffer now? And that's what we're going to look at today. If this is a gospel of suffering, I want nothing to do with it. But if it's a gospel of glory that comes with present suffering, that's what I want. And so that's where we're at in, in Romans chapter 8 right now. What Paul is saying for all of chapter 8 is suffering is a given, but persevere. Persevere because of all of the promises of chapter 1 through 7. And then climactically in chapter 8, there is an unfathomable, an incalculable eternal glory that we know we cannot even get our heads around how good and how awesome it is the promises of the gospel that God has given to us and it is not worth trading that eternal glorious inheritance for any kind of life now this is a bad trade to put it in financial terms a small investment now will yield you an infinite increase in the age to come But if you put all your stocks in this present life, the stock market will crash the day of your death. And you'll have nothing. You'll have worse than nothing. So make a wise choice. That's really the force of what we're looking at in chapter 8. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? As you're finding your place in verse 28, would you please stand? For 27 verses, Paul's been talking about glory in the context of suffering. And now this is the Word of God, Romans 8, 28 down to the end of the chapter. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Well, then who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, this is good. But it's not easy. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess to you at the outset that we seek comfort and security and pleasure. We abhor uh, suffering and difficulty, persecution uh, and death. So we need your help. We need your help to focus on what truly matters, which is fellowship with you now and eternal glory to come. God, each one of us is on a, on a different path. Each one of us is a different place in our walk with you. So each of us needs to hear this morning's sermon in, in a slightly different way. And I can't do that, but your spirit can do that. So I pray that he would preach to each one of us, myself included, according to the word that you have preserved for us here in Romans chapter 8, that all of us would be comforted and rebuked that we find comfort in the promises of the gospel and the glory to come and the fellowship that is present. But also, Lord, we all could take greater steps to conform ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can't do that without your help, so help us. Help us to buy the field with the treasure and to give all that we have to buy this field because we know there's a treasure in it, even though we give up everything that we've earned for ourselves to this point, that we might have Christ who is the treasure. We all need to make changes. God help us. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please be seated. Present suffering is not something you should seek for suffering's sake. I want to say that at the, at the very outset. Suffering in this life is not something that we as Christians should seek after. We're not supposed to be gluttons for punishment. We're not supposed to take some deranged pleasure in suffering. However, we are to seek Christ. Seek Christ with everything you have. Throw off everything that would inhibit you from grasping Him with all of your strength. And this is what I promise. If you do that, you'll suffer. If you do that, you'll find that you're selling possessions. You'll you'll find that you're content with less. You'll find that you're in a dangerous situation. You will find that life is not as comfortable and easy as it once was if you seek Christ. So don't seek suffering. Seek Christ. As you seek Christ, you will suffer. And if you're not suffering, for Christ's sake, then you're not seeking Him as you should. Do you see the logic there? I know it's relative. I said, remember the beginning, there's different measures, different frequencies, different life that we're all called. But we all, so there's no one that can say, not me, I'm out. I, what, what the pastor just said up there, that's not me. We all, myself included, we all, could seek Christ a little more. We all could divest ourselves of the worldliness that has snagged us. There's no one in this room that is exempt from what I've just said. So if you're prone to say, not me, thank you very much, that's not, that's not the path I'm walking, then my concern is, do you even belong to Christ? So don't seek suffering, seek Christ, but suffering will come. That's why we need the gospel. No one will, will per- persevere through this without the gospel. And in, in verses 29 and 30, we get perhaps the most powerful bundle of gospel promises in all of the Scripture. This is why I'm setting us up. What is the point of these two verses? The, po- the point of these two verses is to say it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. To suffer now for Christ. There's five words in these verses that we must take a look at. Take a look at your Bible, and as I'm going through, if you like to write in your Bible, circle them or underline them. For those whom he foreknew, circle that, foreknowledge, foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's the second word, predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the third number, uh, the third word, called. And those whom he called, he also, fourth word, justified. And those whom he justified, he also, fifth, glorified. So we are foreknown, predestined, called, justified and glorified. That is is the golden chain of gospel promises that God gives to those who belong to Christ. And, and, And when you find that you're suffering because of Christ, you have to remember, God foreknew me, He predestined me, He called me, He justified me, and He glorified me. And that will give you all the fuel you need to make it 
through the difficult times of suffering. Well, what do these terms mean? That's going to be the bulk of our time together. And then we're just going to reflect on that as Paul does in 30, chapter, verse 31 through 39. But the bulk of this morning is what are these five words? What's this golden chain of gospel gold and glory? We've already gone through foreknowledge and predestination, but we're going to review them as part of this change, uh, this chain. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, as I said last week, is not just knowing future facts and data. There are some theologians that would have you say, or have you believe, that foreknowledge takes God, if I could just go back in time with God, uh, so see God here as in the eternal past, before He ever created anyone or anything. And God looks forward, not just into our reality, but all possible realities, and he knows, because of his omniscient, our current reality and every contingent reality that is even possible. So I'm not denying that God has that ability. That's, that's a, a, a eternal past omniscience over all possible realities. God has that. It's amazing. But foreknowledge is not that. Foreknowledge is not having all of the data on all of us before we existed. Foreknowledge is to be able to look down the corridors of time and say, I have set my heart on this one, and I have set my unconditional love on that one, and I am in an intimate, eternal fellowship with this one, and I love forever that one. Knowledge, in this sense, is a relational idea of loving unconditionally and fully. It's God putting His agape love on you before you exist. That's foreknowledge. Think of it this way. A husband knows his wife. But if what we mean by that is that a husband has all the data on his wife, that's kind of cold and not what we mean. But a husband who knows his wife has set his heart upon his wife, is in intimate fellowship with his wife. That's the kind of knowledge that God has of us. It's the knowledge that a husband has for his wife and everything that comes with that. Except it's far greater and far better because we husbands are weak and we're sinful, so we don't even love our wives. We don't know our wives the way that God knows us. But now, that's the knowledge part, but now the, the part of the word that's really important is foreknowledge, that God has this relationship with us <coughs> before he said, let there be light. And that is something to take great comfort in. Why? Because all of a sudden, God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It's not as though God looked down on you in 1974 or 1987 or 20, uh, 2010 or 2019. He didn't look down at you at a particular time in history and say, oh, that person's kind of lovable. That person's likable. I'm going to put my heart on that one because I see something now from way up on high that I kind of like that one. That's not that's not." God's relationship with us at all. That's not the foundation of it at all. The foundation of our relationship is before God made us or anything, before God even chose this plan and he saw an infinite number of possibilities of what he could have done 
with reality. He says, I'm going to pick this plan and I'm going to pick these people in this plan to be my bride. They're going to be the ones that I love unconditionally. They're going to be the recipients of my grace, my divine favor, and it has absolutely nothing to do with their lovability. It has everything to do with my choice of them because I choose to love them. That's foreknowledge. So if it, it, and where this doctrine is really important, let's say you have a bad day, let's say you have a bad week, let's say you have a bad month or a bad year, you're just in a bad season of life and you've, you've, you've slidden away from God, you're, you're making decisions that are not honoring to Him, if you don't have an uh, understanding of foreknowledge, you might begin to believe the lie that God will stop loving you. Impossible. Impossible. Because His love for you has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with his foreknowledge. Before God said, let there be light, God knew everything about you. That's his omniscience. He knew all your bad days. He knew all of your secret sins. He, he knew what it would take to save you. And before he said, let there be light, he says, I love you. That's foreknowledge. We're told that those whom God foreknew like this, he also predestined. In the context here, predestination is he, he came up because he chose you and loved you in all of the infinite possibilities of reality. He chose a, a path or a reality in which he predetermined the life that you would live. He, he, he decided what it would be that you would go through in life. He, he decided the suffering that you would endure. <coughs> now, this is hard for us. This does not mean that you are a robot or a puppet. He did not determine your life as if you did not have an autonomous will, and I can't reconcile that for you this morning. We have autonomous will. That is, our choices matter. God has picked, of all the contingencies, th there was a, a reality where he could have just made robots. He said, I don't want to just make robots. I don't want to just make puppets. I want to make creatures that have an autonomous will, individual personalities. I want, I want a, a reality where my creatures get to choose things. And nevertheless, somehow, in spite of that, he also said, I am going to give those, those, those people that I love a, a set of circumstances to walk through, and we're told in verse 29 that those circumstances and all of that suffering will be used by me to conform them to the image of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's predestination. More broadly, it means that the sovereign God of the universe knows every blade of grass, every sparrow that dies, to use Jesus' words. He knows every star, and he knows every molecule, where it is. And he knows you. And he knew the life that you would live, and he predestined you to live it before he created you. And the reason that you're living the life that you're living is so that God might use all of it to make you like Jesus. So how do we put that together with, with the fact that we have our own choices to make? I, I can't resolve that for you but the Bible teaches both. You make choices and God has predestined your life. And he has put things in your life to make you like Jesus. 
Because God loved you as his child from eternity past, he also planned your life so that he could make you like Jesus. We continue on, he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Called. What does it mean to be called? We have to remember that foreknowledge and predestination happen back here in eternity past. So before God creates anything, he, he sees everything, He knows everything, He chooses to love you in spite of you, and then He says, this is the life that I'm going to ask them to walk through so that they can be made glorious like my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at a point in, in the space-time continuum, so for us, somewhere between, well, let's be careful, 1905 and the present day, God called you. 1905 is probably not necessary. <laughs> that was when my grandfather was born. Uh, so somewhere in the space-time continuum, he calls you into a saving relationship with him. So every one of us was born an enemy of God. God foreknew us. He loved us, but he allowed us to be born totally depraved sinners. And even while we were hating him and we were rebellious against him, he loved us in a, in a foreknowledge kind of way. But at a particular point in time, God breaks into our life. You see, no one born into this world will love God. No one will respond to God. No one will seek Christ. Because that's a part of what it means to be a sinner. We hate God. We hate Jesus. We hate the gospel. We're rebels. We're enemies. We will not bow our knee to King Jesus. So we have to be called. And this is what happens. We are born again. That is, God graciously intervenes in our life, regenerates us, gives us faith, so that we of our own freedom and volition can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, love him, and be saved. But the order is really important. God breaks into our life. He gives us the faith that we then spend. It becomes our very own. We spend that, we extend that, we exercise that faith, and we are saved. No one can come to faith without the help of God. God has to call us. Now, this works against our, our, our pride. Uh, unsaved people hate this. This is also, by the way, what it means to be, in, in very basic terms, a Reformed Christian. Uh, we're a Reformed Baptist or Reformed Evangelical Church. That is, we believe that it, it's entirely a work of God's grace to save us. We cannot choose God until He chooses us. We love God because He first loved us. We can exercise faith in God because He first gave us the faith. That's all what it means to be called. God calls us. There's a really good illustration of this in the Scriptures. And among other reasons, I think this might be exactly why God did this. Uh, in the life of Christ. Uh, how many of you have heard of Lazarus? Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, good friends of, of Jesus, and, and Jesus is uh, at a distance. He finds out that Lazarus is sick. sick. He stays away so that Lazarus will die. Lazarus dies, is buried in a tomb for four days. Four days is really important because by the time you get to the fourth day, even under Jewish tradition, the soul has departed the body, decomposition has already begun, the person is dead. 
There, there's no resuscitating somebody who's been dead for four days. Jesus goes to uh, Bethany where Lazarus lived. Martha and Mary come out crying. Oh, if only you had been here. Jesus says, what? Don't you believe that I am the resurrection? Oh, yes, we know there will be a resurrection on the last day. Jesus then does something amazing. He calls Lazarus. This is a great illustration for understanding how we come to faith. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. What that means is, it, what, well, how likely was it that Lazarus could have just willed himself to life? What's the chance, percentage-wise? Zero. Lazarus is dead. Dead people cannot will themselves alive. We are all dead in our trespasses and sin. Even though God foreknew us and predestined us, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's uh, Ephesians 2.1. We have as much chance of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ of our own volition, our own will, as Lazarus had of willing himself out of the tomb. But Jesus stayed away so that Lazarus would die and get buried so that he could help us to understand this point. Jesus comes and he, he calls out, Lazarus, arise. Jesus called him. What did Lazarus do? Of his own free will. That's really important. Of his own free will, Jesus, uh, Lazarus got up. But he couldn't do it of his own free will before he was called. Lazarus got up, he took the grave clothes off, he came out. Great rejoicing. That's what it means to be called. God calls us, he, he regenerates our, us, he, he circumcises our hearts. This is where you get all that which we're going to talk about now. He gives us the faith to believe. And that we of our own free will exercise faith and believe. Those who are called are justified. There's no such thing as Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, arise. And, G and Lazarus says, leave me alone. I'm dead, don't you know it? This just doesn't happen. When God calls, life is the result of it. Lazarus was brought to life. He couldn't stop himself from coming back to life. We cannot stop ourselves from being born again. So those whom God calls, he justifies. If you've been called, you've been justified. You cannot reject the call of God. So he says to you, get up and be alive. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will. And you will of your own free will. Even though you can't resist it. You've got to put those two together. Lazarus, from, from that moment, was living and obeying of his own free will, but he couldn't do it himself. So justification, what does it mean? When God breaks into our life and gives us the faith, do you know what God has always said is, believe in the promises of God, have faith, and I will count that to you as perfect righteousness. So here's the situation. God says, I'm going to make a bunch of promises to you, and if you believe them, I will consider you not to be an awful sinner, but I will consider you not just to be innocent, but fully righteous. So God pays off our sin debt, and then he adds to our account perfect righteousness. And the way that he does this, 
important word. He imputes our sin to Jesus. That is, if you could just picture, at the moment that he calls you, he bundles all, all your sin up, ties it in a bow. Well, it's not pretty. This is a black bow. And then he nails it to the cross in the body of Jesus. And then he adds to your account in the throne room of heaven all of the righteous deeds of Jesus. Every righteous act that Jesus did, every righteous thought, every righteous inclination, God just puts it in your account. So now when you stand before God and he wants to balance your life like a checkbook, he says, well, there's no debts. They've all been paid off. And in fact, you're abundantly wealthy. You have all of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did I, how? You believed. You believed in my promises. You believed that Jesus came and died for your sins and rose on the third day. Well, how did I believe that? Well, I, I gave you the faith so that you would believe. Now, this is a lavish God. A lavish God that gives us the very currency, faith, that we need to believe so that he can then pay off our sin debt and give us all of the righteousness of Christ. And, and what, what Paul says here is if you've been called, that is a given. There is no one that Jesus calls and says, no, thank you. I don't want it. I don't believe. It's irresistible. Irresistible. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When you were declared to be righteous, when God gave you faith and you spent that faith on justification, you also got thrown in the promise of future glory. It was secured. It's as good as done. Even though it's in our future, it is absolutely secure waiting for us on the day of Christ Jesus. There are no justified people who will not be glorified. And what is this glory, you may ask? Well, it starts now. The, the glory begins now. You've been made obedient from the heart. That's the beginning of glorification. The beginning of your glorification you get to enjoy now. And, and you, we're told in, in uh, Romans 6 and 7 that we've been made obedient from the heart. That is, from the heart, your sin has been cut out of your heart. Your inclination and desire to sin has been removed. And now you always desire to obey from the heart. You love God from the heart. Even though we know we have the flesh and an inclination to sin on top of it. But more than that, the best is yet to come. Though we die, the promise of glorification is if you belong to God, he's going to raise your bodies from the dead in glory, some super physical power. And you will live in a super physical glorified universe as an adopted child of God and a brother or sister of Jesus Christ in the eternal future forever and ever. There's a lot there that we've preached on past I can't re-preach. Let me put it into perspective for you. In eternity past, before there was a space-time continuum, before anything uh, in this universe existed, before God said, there, let there be light, God looked down the corridors of time, and he said, I'm going to choose some people. 
I'm going to love them unconditionally. At some point in their life, I'm going to transform them from sinful rebels who hate me into children who love me, and I'm going to give them the faith that they need to be justified, and if they're justified, I'm also going to glorify them. And it starts with sanctification. I'm going to give them an obedient heart, even though it's going to be at war in them against their sin nature. But as God is down there looking down the corridors of time, and he predestines a life that's going to conform us to the likeness of Christ, he sees that we're all going to die, but he says not to worry. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes back and calls for us from the grave, just as he called for Lazarus, and we are going to be raised to life in glory, and we will be in these bodies super physically forever, and then it's not done. God is going to glorify the universe and he's going to make this universe of such a quality that the infinite eternal God who started down there is going to come and live inside the universe with us and it's going to glow with the inapproachable light of God and we are going to be brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ with no death, no sickness, no sin forever and ever done if you belong to Christ. Now something I want you to notice, this is all done by God. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. So that when we're down here living in unspeakable glory and riches of every kind, none of us will say, God, I did a little. I did a little. No. No. God did it for us. Now, having said that, do we work with God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? We do. But here's the other thing which we can't preach in depth the, the energy, the desire, the strength, the spiritual ability even to work out our salvation is itself a gift from God. So you have first, I uh, forget what it is, if it's 1 Corinthians 15, I forget, oh, that's too bad. Uh, read the whole chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what he says is, uh, I worked, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I am the least of the apostles, untimely born. But God was gracious to me, and I worked harder than any of the other apostles. But it wasn't me. It was God's grace at work in me. What, what verse is it? 15, verse 9. You can all thank Wayne for saving you from having to read the whole chapter. <laughs> but that chapter is about resurrection and glory, so read it and love it. This is an amazing gospel. And, and what, I, what, what I want to do, if you remember where we started, it seems like we're a long ways away from, you know, suffer for Christ. But that's the point, right? That's the point. You, you go up to chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. And if you know who you are, in Christ, from eternity past to eternity future. Yes, we have been called and now we are, we are just here waiting for future glory. And it's hard and there's suffering. And, and you might even be killed for your faith. Do it. Do it. 
present suffering is part of the predestined plan that God has given to each one of us so that we might enjoy the fullness of this glory. And here's one other thing that, again, I can't preach in fullness now, that, but not everyone is, is, this, is equal in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, store up riches for yourself in heaven where rust and moth do not decay. There's going to be a hierarchy within the glory. Now, uh, even the smallest cup will be full and overflowing. There's nothing to worry about. Everyone, the, the glory is unspeakable for all of us. But the measure that we live for Christ now and seek him will be reflected in our eternal glory. Nothing will be lost. Everything will be made right. Everything will be paid back with an infinite increase. So, so live that way. I promise you, your house is not that nice compared to that. It's not. And there is no house that you can get, no, no car that's fast enough or TV that's great enough or, or vacation that's luxurious enough that says, yeah, I'm going to sort of trade this in. And, and the other thing, to say, well, I, I got out of hell and that's all I really care about, that's not the mentality of, of somebody who's saved. That's just not. And if that's your mentality, I worry for your salvation because that's not the faith that God gives us when he calls us. He doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, good enough. Good enough. That's not the gospel. People who are saved are zealous for the Lord. We, we want to lay it all out there for the Lord. Now, there's a lot of thorns in the culture that we live in, so we're like, see this plant in the ground and, and the thorns threaten to choke off. But the thing is, do the thorns choke off or not? We all have to grow up through the thorns, and those who belong to Christ will grow up through the thorns. But, but are, the th are the thorns choking you off? Are you even saved? If you're not willing to seek Christ and to take the suffering that comes with it, I, I can't give you an assurance And this is what I hate going full circle about the prosperity gospel. It takes the truth, right? Eternal riches, glory, blessing. And cheapens it. Tries to pull it back into our present. Tries to actually make it smaller because there's no amount of blessing that the world can give you that comes anywhere close to what God is going to give us. It's just a bad trade. I had a whole section on sanctification that I'm going to skip over. Someday we'll get to it. Let me at least just say this. You might notice that we go from justification to glorification. The reason is sanctification is glorification. It's conceptually the same thing. Justification and sanctification are two different things. Justification is your legal standing before God. You're, you are considered to be in the courtroom of heaven righteous. That's justification. Sanctification and glorification are the same conceptual family. And glorification is just the fulfillment of sanctification. That's why I said that we have the, the beginnings of glorification now. Uh, sanctification and glorification is the transformation of your nature. Do you see how they're two different things? So this one's positional, and this one is 
ontological or natural, meaning your nature, who you are. So you get a new status with justification. You get a new creation with sanctification and glorification. So Paul says, I'm not even going to talk about sanctification because sanctification is partial. Sanctification is the down payment of future glory. So he just says, well, let's just go straight to glory because it's the same thing. So I guess I did preach on it, but <laughs> I was going to say more, but if you have questions on that, I would like to, I would like to talk to you about that. Now, God, remember, this is all in the context of suffering because God has revealed his glory within the context of suffering and we have to remember that God is perfectly wise. The God who foreknew you as his child predestined a perfect plan to conform you to the image of his son and you're living it. And you could live it more, if I could say, though that's not exactly theologically true, but I think pastorally it's true that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so partner with god to be conformed into the likeness of christ and and this plan this predestined plan was initiated when god called you from death to life by giving you the faith to believe which justified you and began your glorification the change of your nature now if all of this true is true and it is verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? I recognize my own weakness as a preacher. This text is supposed to make us absolutely speechless. And I don't think I did that, but I pray that the Holy Spirit might have done that for you. This golden chain, this bundle of gospel treasure is intended to make us speechless. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified, all by God for us. If God is for us, And he's done these things for us. Who can be against us? Powerful point. A slightly different way. Can anyone take that away from you? No. If God has secured it from eternity past and it's secure in eternity future and now you have to work it out in the middle, it's not going to get taken from you. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here's the thinking of this. Uh, Jesus is the second person of the triune God. So in order to foreknow us, predestine us, call us, justify us, and glorify us, God said the only way that I can do those five things is if I, God, second person of the Trinity, the Son, become one of them, enter into this suffering, and take it on myself. And if God was willing to do that, and he did do that, won't he see it through? Would he send his Son to not accomplish 
what he set out to accomplish? And why did Jesus go to the cross? Because of the foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glory that God wants to give to us. But then who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who could stand in the heavens? And this is what Satan does, right? Who could stand in the, in the heavens and say, not that one, God, you can't save that one. God says, get out of here. You can't tell me who I can save and who I can't save. I have planned this. I have done it. Nobody can bring a charge against us. Not even the devil. Not even you. It's God who justifies. You don't justify yourself. God does. So then who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. I love that. More than that, how do we know that the death of Christ saves us? Well, he was raised back to life. If Jesus was just a lunatic, he would have stayed in the grave. But he is God, and he accomplished what he said he would accomplish with his death. How do we know? He was raised back to life. And now he's at the right hand of God. And this one who died for us and was raised to prove that he died for us is now in the presence of God and he's praying for us. He will hold us fast. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do you think that you could do something that would separate you from the love of God? Jesus proved his love when he died for you because he knew all about you before he died. He was risking nothing for you. He knew all of your sin. And he did it anyway. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of God? This is the sufferings, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. The Bible tells us that for God's sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're to be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So don't be surprised when the world hates you, when the world tries to kill you, when the world does kill you. Don't be surprised. The Bible has told you that that's going to happen. And when it's happening, do not think that God has turned his face away from you. Don't for a moment think that God, because you're suffering, that God has stopped loving you. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm sure that whether we die or whether we live, whether uh, there's not an angel or a demon, there's nothing in the present nor in the future, there's no power, there's no, nothing as the highest heavens or as deep as hell, nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Otherwise, God wouldn't have sent Jesus. Jesus is too precious, too valuable to die on the cross not to secure what he came to secure. And what did he come to secure? Your very lives in glory. You're going to suffer if you seek Christ. Keep it in perspective. And pay the price. For Jesus Christ is the treasure in the field that nobody wants until 
one day they stumble upon it and say, I would give everything I own to have this. My question as I close, is that true for you? Is it true for me? Is it true for us? Would we give everything we have for the sake of knowing Christ? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You can have that or you can have this world. Let's pray.